there's a lot of biases and prejudices, uh, you know, with women being more emotional. I have had probably a 60-40 split in terms of that in my office. 40% of the women are uncomfortable with emotional intimacy and 60% of men are uncomfortable with emotional intimacy, you know? So it, it's really interesting how, you know, I've been able to witness that on, in a very intimate way with these couples. This is the show for those who want to live strong in business, life, and family. Welcome to the Warrior Her podcast. Hey, Warriors. Welcome back to the Warrior Her podcast. This is Courtney, your host. I am joining you today for episode six of the podcast where we will be talking to Dr. Eva Brown. She is a licensed marriage and family therapist who has her own practice in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, where she works with individuals and couples. And she is talking with us today about maintaining intimacy and sexual connections in relationships. She found her gift of helping women through actually hosting passion parties. So she's going to talk to us about that and how that kind of transformed into pursuing a doctoral degree and then now working with clients specifically for that area in relationships. I'm so excited. So without further ado, welcome Dr. Eva Brown. I was born in upstate New York in Utica. And I came to Florida when I was about three years old. My family came here because they wanted to live in warmer weather. And my dad was working on a couple of different business ventures down here in South Florida. And I, I have a great family life. My family's amazing. I got into um, this work actually because I wanted to help couples learn how to be intimate in their relationship because I did passion parties in my 20s. I was an executive director with Passion Parties, which is a company out of Las Vegas. It's a multi-level marketing company. And I did that for about 10 years and I loved it. And um, what would happen is, is that these ladies would come to my parties and it would be all women, of course. And I would do some sexual education and I would show them some different products that they could use to spice up their bed, their bedroom life. And it was just a great way for me to make money while I was going through my master's, while I was going through my PhD and also my undergraduate as well. And it was a way for me to not work as hard because I was working on getting my education at the same time. So it was pretty cool. I made really good money. But the sad part of that career for the 10 years that I was doing it was that women would often come into the ordering room with me and they would cry and tell me how terrible their relationship was and how sad and disappointed and lonely they were. And I often found myself communicating with them about their relationship and I felt very inadequate in, in, in talking to them or even being able to supply them with any resources that might help them. Because I had no background in, in couples therapy or couples work. And, you know, I believe in education. So, so for me, I was like, well, if I'm going to help these people and I really have a passion for doing this, then I'm just going to go to school for it. Because, you know, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I was a high school athlete. I was third team all county. I played college sports. And I just kind of was an athlete most of my life and didn't really think about, well, I did think about it, but I just wasn't sure what did I want to do with my life. And so that's how I got involved with passion parties. And while I was going through my undergraduate and figured out, well, I want to do this full time. And I actually went to go get my master's in PhD because I wanted to serve the community more, especially women. And now I'm passionate about serving men and women in their relationships. So that's been, that's been my journey so far. So for people who are listening, who don't know what a passion party is, yeah. can you. Have you been to a passion party before, Courtney? I don't think so. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like I'm familiar with it, but I don't, it might be something different from what I'm thinking. So 
Yeah, no, a passion party is I sold central products. I sold lubricants. I sold vibrators. I sold lingerie. It was a sales company, but I made such great relationships with these women. And we had so much fun together, but they also just had this deep sadness about them. And so, uh, you know, that's the story. <laughs> and why do you, why do you think, or maybe not why do you think, but passion parties, have you had men attend? No. Or are they specifically for women toys? Um, no, I mean, it's, I mean, honestly, the products that sold were not really the toys. Every once in a while, you know, someone would buy a toy or something like that. But it was mostly for sensual products like massage oils, like lubricants. A lot of women have a hard time lubricating during sexual intimacy. Um, to be honest with you, there's a lot of women that have a lot of pain during sexual intimacy. So they would buy lubricants and massage and things for foreplay and things to kind of get them in the mood. Um, because they would often complain that their partner didn't spend much time, you know, getting them excited or on the romantic part of it. It was just kind of like a wham, bam, thank you, ma'am situation for them. And so I focus a lot of my work now on intimacy and emotional intimacy. And that communication is intimacy. Um, a lot of people think intimacy is just sexuality or feeling close with someone, but there's actually strategies and techniques and, you know, research that has been proven to work with couples um, to help them create a closer bond because a lot of us don't have that map um, of intimacy from our families. You know, I know I didn't. I, I grew up in a, an Italian, Jewish, and Irish household. And uh, one of my biggest triggers in my family system growing up was not feeling heard. So I'm sure you could imagine how that showed up in my relationship. <laughs> that was nice and fun at the beginning of our marriage. But once I was done with my PhD and I started to really understand what triggers were and how family of origin played such a role in how we are intimate in our relationships, if that makes sense, Courtney. Yeah. And so I um, really started studying and researching and understanding the phenomena behind intimacy and what works for couples and what creates a closer bond. And it was funny because I was getting, you know, prepared for this conversation last night, just thinking about what I wanted to talk about. And it dawned on me that I have close to 10,000 hours of therapy with couples at this point underneath my belt, just working with couples, working through issues like we're talking about now, intimacy, sexuality, and those types of things. So it's been a pretty awesome ride, that's for sure. And can you can you actually define intimacy? Because I, I know I was actually talking to some girls before to see, like, do you have any questions? Like, what would you want to know um, talking to her? And there was a lot of conflict around what intimacy is. Do you think that it's subjective? Or is there, is there a scientific definition that you use in your practice of intimacy? Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't call it scientific, um, meaning that I didn't do research on intimacy. Um, so I really don't have any data in that way. But I do have, like I mentioned, 10,000 hours of spending time with couples. And I formulated my own definition of intimacy. Um, and I wouldn't say it's like a definition that you would find in Google. But um, for me, as a relationship expert, it's communication is a huge part of intimacy and vulnerability. For example, like Brene Brown has done research on vulnerability, right? And um, she talks about it as having courage and strength to speak your truth and to speak from an emotion-focused perspective. Sue Johnson is another researcher who talks about emotion-focused theory and attachment styles. Also, John Bowlby is really big with attachment styles as well. Um, he was the original theorist of it. And collection, the collection of all of their research, in addition to my experience with couples, there's a lot that goes into creating intimacy. There's, so there's not just one word. 
But I would say the most important is open, heart-centered, conscious communication. Um, and what I mean by that is an emotion-focused communication. Like, for example, a lot of times couples will get into an argument or they'll be talking about something, and very rarely will they start with their feelings. What they'll do is they'll start with their thoughts, with their, but they're actually masking their thoughts as an emotion. For example, they'll say something like, I feel that you, blah, blah, blah. And then they'll just go into their thoughts thinking that they're sharing a feeling, but they're really just sharing their thought about something. Because a feeling is very simple. It's I feel disappointed, I feel sad, I feel lonely, I feel depressed, I feel happy, I feel joyful, I feel excited. Those are feelings. When people start getting into the content or what I call political platform arguing, you know, or political platform communication, meaning this is my idea and here's how it's better than yours. And this is my idea and here how, here's how it's better than yours. You hear how it's more right than yours, you know. And so we'll get into that right and wrong paradigm. And those types of paradigms in relationships is the quickest way to contempt um, and resentment, which is actually the number one sign for divorce. A lot of people don't know that. People think it's affairs. You know, people think it's, um, uh, you know, trust issues, that type of thing. It's actually not. It's literally the emotion of contempt, which is basically like hate, is what brings and, and you know, kind of builds over years. And eventually it falls apart. And that was researched by Drs. John and Julie Gottman. And, I mean, back to what you said about starting the with how you feel. Yeah. Right. Um, wouldn't that then, you know, if you're starting typically in an argument, like I'm thinking of what I've done to my husband in the past is literally as you were saying it, I'm like, I've done that. It's, of course. I felt like I started and I was already attacking him. So it was exactly. like, he didn't want to, we didn't want to go anywhere from there because I'm the top. I want to figure it out in my relationship. I want to, I want to talk it out and figure it out. And he isn't that way. He, he needs to like think about it and he, he thinks about what he says. I'm more impulsive. Well, I would say that there could be based off what you're saying and most couples go through this anyway, but if you're wondering, it, I would probably, if, if you came into my office and said that to me, I would probably look in to see if there's any intimacy blocks, um, you know, and try to get the two of you guys to embody intimacy blocks because and what I mean by that is vulnerability blocks. Because you don't really need a lot of time to think about how you feel, believe it or not. Um, it's very simple. Like I said, like, for example, a, a repair between my husband and I, Courtney, and you always talk about how you like my vulnerability. I'll give you some vulnerability, okay? <laughs> um, so, for example, in the, like, for example, if I get triggered in my relationship, and I teach this to my couples, okay? This is just one of my formulas. Um, and I also live by it as well, which is obviously important. There's a lot of people that are not living by what they teach, which, um, you know, feels out of integrity for me. But anyway, that's a side note. Um, so let's say I get triggered, right? So a typical trigger for me is not feeling heard. Obviously, like I mentioned earlier, grew up in the Irish, Italian, Jewish family system. You know, they would ask me a question. And then in the, in the middle of the question, they would start another you know, inquiry about something else with another person, right? So I grew up with this kind of feeling not heard. And so in my own relationship, I mean, now I got to the point where I manage it. But at the very beginning of the relationship, it started off like something like this. Paul, you never listen to me. You're, you're not paying attention to me. I don't understand. Why is this? Why don't you why don't you get me? You know, and Paul would be there. Paul would be sitting there like, babe, I am listening to you, you know? And so what I realized as the years have gone by and as I've, you know, dedicated myself to my craft is that we have these embedded triggers that are already pre-programmed before you even get into the relationship with your partner, right? So what I would want to do is find out where, what are your triggers, right? Um, some typical triggers are for couples are inadequacy, not feeling good enough, not feeling heard. Um, not feeling lovable, um, not feeling worthy. I mean, those are just a couple. I mean, there's like probably a hundred. 
so or more. But there's there's about 10 typical ones that I get all the time in my office, okay? And once couples start to understand what are my triggers, it's so interesting because people really start, are they're able to communicate from a place of awareness? Meaning, for example, like myself, going back to that example of not feeling heard, I would say something like this to Paul now. Hey, honey, I'm just feeling triggered right now. I need a couple of minutes to calm down and then we can talk about it. And then when we sit down and I have a conversation with him about something, I don't blame or attack or use you. For example, if you start your sentences off with you always or you never or you're the type of person who to your partner, they're going to feel attacked and they're going to get defensive. So one way to circumvent that is by saying, I feel frustrated. I feel unhappy. I feel not heard. And I'm not saying that you are doing that to me, right? So you're kind of taking your partner off the hook and taking an accountability for your own triggers, right? So quick repair is, hey, honey, I just don't feel heard right now. It would really make a difference if you could just active listen for me for a second so I know that we're on the same page. And so what I did was make a, a request for change just now. So I said how I felt and I made a request for change. And honestly, it doesn't get any more complicated than that when my husband and I do a repair. I mean, we, we do a repair now probably in five, 10 minutes and it's over, you know, even, even, even if it's like a big trigger. And the reason why is because we don't get caught in the story of our perceptions because we realize that our perceptions are also embedded with pre-programmed triggers. Does that make sense? It does. Okay. And I was actually reading this article. Um, it's titled Psychological Intimacy in the Lasting Relationships of Heterosexual and Same-Gender Couples. Yeah. And they talked, they had a really um, interesting definition of how they looked at intimacy. And they had a part in it that said, it's putting aside the masks we wear in the rest of our lives. And I just found that to be very interesting because some of the girls that I had talked to before were saying that, you know, their idea of intimacy was more sexual. And then when I was looking up some research to try to find just more information, I found this article and they focused more on psychological intimacy, they call it. Yep. And yep. looking at the sense that one could be open and honest when talking with their partner about personal thoughts and feelings. And that also was different among same sex couples and um, heterosexual couples. Mm, Have you seen that not in your practice at all? No, I haven't seen any difference between different types of couples. I'll have to send you this article. It was, it was we um, all have triggers, really you know, if we're human beings and we're walking around, um, you know, in this world, we all have triggers. It doesn't matter if you're same sex or not. As a matter of fact, same sex relationships tend to be very intimate. Um, sometimes more intimate than you actually think when it comes to heterosexual couples, you know, because they kind of come in with a lot more strife, you know, first, they have to come out to everyone that they're a lesbian, or they're, you know, gay, yeah. or they're swingers, or, you know, so they, they come in with a lot more survival than a normal heterosexual couple. And so what that does is it creates more intimacy between the bond. Um, but it doesn't last that that coming into the relationship like that doesn't last if both of them don't want to be vulnerable. And I don't think there's any difference between same sex or um, I've seen heterosexual couples that have absolutely no intimacy whatsoever. They're completely blocked. And I've seen women, too. I mean, there's a lot of biases and prejudices, of, you know, with women being more emotional. I have had probably a 60-40 split in terms of that in my office. 40% um, of the women are uncomfortable with emotional intimacy, and 60% of men are uncomfortable with emotional intimacy, you know? So it, it's really interesting how, um, you know, I've been able to witness that. On, in a very intimate way with these couples. Um, and and same-sex couples have the same kind of problems as heterosexual couples, too. There's really no difference. And same thing with swinging couples. 
Um, there's just one big difference, you know, between a heterosexual couple and a swinging couple, because I know you were going to ask me about that. Mm-hmm. Um, the biggest difference between those two relationships needs to be, and I think a heterosexual couple needs to be this as well. I mean, this is my wish and my mission for the world, for all couples to live in conscious and awake partnership. But um, uh, couples that swing re- that are going to be long-term swingers, for, for example, their whole lives, mm-hmm. they really have to have dialed in emotional intimacy, vulnerability. They would have had to go through um, you know, some sort of therapy to figure out what are my own blocks, what are my own insecurities and my own strengths, those types of things. So that way they're very clear moving into that relationship. And also a lot of times swinging couples have very different sexual preferences than heterosexual couples. Heterosexual couples will often report that they only want to have one partner, whereas um, swinging couples like the adventure and some of them definitely have sex, you know, sex addictions going on, of course. Um, but some are just a little bit more free with their sexuality. And they don't believe in, you know, the typical monogamous, um, not just having one person to have sex with, but also they like a lot of freedom. So it can be, you really, and you really have to be clear with people that, like when I work with my swinging couples, because I actually have worked with a lot in the past 11 years, um, they have to be really clear that this is not a commitment avoidance. Like they're not swinging because they have a commitment avoidance, because that's a really big problem in people that are swinging. Um, In other words, they're doing it for other reasons than avoiding true deep intimacy. And then I've also... How do people come yeah. to the realization yeah. that they may have commitment avoidance? Oh, well, I would talk to them and I would probably work through maybe checking out some of their family of origin history. For example, did their father or mother have a hard time committing to each other? I would probably want to see if there's any trauma around that for that person. Um, I would also see if there was any traumas um, in terms of their dating life. For example, did they get cheated on a lot? Did they get broken up with a lot? Did they have a lot of heartaches? You know, those are the types of things that would be red flags for me. Okay. And and this is something that you come together as a potential reason if they're, so if they're in a, a swinging relationship or they're swingers and you realize that they have commitment avoidance and that's why they're doing it, yeah. what would be the next? Um, move for you well it all depends you know it's interesting every single situation is different so i i don't know if i can really answer that but typically or if you had an example of maybe a client that you had treated before that you could yeah i think i'd be more comfortable saying what i would typically do okay um i i think typically i would go through what that is, there would be some acknowledgement about it. You know, of course, I work collaboratively with my clients. So if I bring something to their attention, they have to either negate it, or say, you know what, I think there's something to that. And then we would kind of go into the storyline behind why it's so scary for the commitment, you know, what feels scary to you, you know, and then sometimes we'll go through all of that. And, you know, I'll ask them, you know, now that you've kind of gone through it and you're understanding these are my triggers, these are the things that affect you in a monogamous relationship. Um, You also have, because a lot of people have really clear feelings too about wanting to have multiple sexual partners, even if they do have a commitment uh, problem, you know what I mean? Like they, and so for me, I like my clients to be able to make a conscious choice meaning an aware choice about how they want to live their lives. Mm-hmm. And in so doing, when they make that conscious choice to either stop swinging or continue to do it because they so choose, which is totally fine. Um, as long as they're aware of some of those blocks and working through those blocks with the main partner that they're with um, and allowing themselves to be vulnerable and things like that, stepping into um, that kind of intimacy with this, with the, the main partner, 
then I think it's fine for them to explore sex, their own sexuality. I think it's fine. And, and, and to, to explore making love or having sex with other people. But again, it's, you're, I still want to bring that place where they can have like a both and relationship with the swinging lifestyle, meaning that I'm deeply committed to this partner that I'm with right now. And I feel really committed and really in love and really intimate. And we're also making a decision to have um, sexual experiences that include other people. And I was looking at your, your website and you said that you have these couples booster sessions. Yeah. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about those and um, what types of people are really do you recommend those services for? Um, for my booster sessions, I mean, honestly, I think all couples need some type of therapeutic work on their relationship. And what I mean by that is um, every couple needs to learn how do we maintain intimacy? How do we maintain sexuality? What are your triggers? What are my triggers? Um, what does research say? For example, there's actually three differences, big differences between happily married couples and unhappily married couples. The three biggest differences are happily married couples are five times more positively acknowledging. So if I have a couple that comes in and they're criticizing each other every other sentence, I know that they're not being five times more acknowledging and positive, right? And Another number two for the differences between happily married couples and unhappily married couples is happily married couples, based on research, um, repair from the argument or from the trigger every single time. You know, they don't sweep it under the rug, Courtney. You know, they don't pretend like it's not there. They don't. They communicate everything that they feel is they're communicating in a repair, and that repair actually needs to be learned because a typical repair that most couples do is hey i'm sorry it was my fault oh my god that was so terrible you know and they'll just say sorry 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 their whole entire relationship and never realize that the other person also needs to take accountability for how arguments go down as well you know or how triggers happen as well so what i like to do is i like to throw right and wrong right in the trash can in the very, very first session and when I work with couples and they're like, oh my God, how do you do that? You know, um, and, and they're really kind of shocked that they don't have to play the right or wrong game or the political game because I talk to them and I tell them, hey, you don't want to be a Republican and a Democrat in the same freaking house. You know what I mean? <laughs> and when you're, when you're arguing like that, you're just arguing the politics. No, that's not what you said. You said it like this, and then you gave me an attitude. No, uh, that's not what happened. You came in, and then you did this, right? And then they go into name calling and all that awesome stuff, you know? And so that's not a repair. A repair is like very simply a soft start. Hey, thanks so much for doing this, this, and this, and this. I really appreciate it, but I've been feeling frustrated, and this would make a difference for me, right? Making a quick request for change. And people, Couples have to learn how to be able to communicate like that. I mean, that's what my whole online program is. Like, for example, I'm doing a, um, a three-month online immersion. It's a hybrid program for couples that are, you know, married, they're happy, you know, they're, they're generally very close, but they just have to dial in the systems and the communication and the intimacy because they know things could be better, right? So for those couples, I like the immersion programs or my booster programs. Um, and the last part, the difference between unhappily married couples and unhappily married couples is accountability. Couples have to be able to know what their own triggers are. So that was a very long answer to your short question of, you know, what are these booster programs for? What are these immersion programs for? It's to dial in those systems. It's just like when you go into a business. You don't go into a business completely blind. You know, it's just like when you start a podcast, you have to learn. How do I do this? How do I do that? Right? It's the same thing in a marriage. But people think they have, I mean, it's changing. I have a lot of, I mean, I see about 20 to 25 couples a week. And it's changing. You know, couples are starting to come to therapy. I mean, I would say it probably started to shift maybe seven years ago when they were like, you know what? I'm going to come to therapy and I don't want, and couples are starting to come to therapy instead of waiting till like they're on a divorce row 
you know, they're coming in and they're doing preventative work. And I couldn't be happier with that. Yeah, I think that's a great point that you bring up about preventative, because um, I feel as a society, we are very reactive. So we kind of wait until the ship is sinking. Yeah. And then it's, you know, it's common for people because of the stigmas around therapy and, oh, I have to get help. I need to do something that I can't do this myself. Right. And I love um, that everything you do. <laughs> and that's why I wanted to have you on because I just felt like you could give so much information and to couples and to, to women, especially um, that it's okay to do this. And um, yeah. I, I do want to know more about your, your couples retreats. Too, yeah. Cause I saw those. How often do you do those? Um, I do them once or twice a year. Uh, my next one is February uh, for 13th, 14th, 16th, 17th, and 18th, I believe. It's in the middle of, uh, right after um, Valentine's Day. And I do it at my center over in Fort Lauderdale. And all my couples stay on the beach because we're right next to A1A in Fort Lauderdale, which is pretty great. And the couples come in and I really create a very tight container for them to grow together. You know, we go through communication mastery. We go through intimacy and sacred sexuality mastery. I teach them weekly rituals. You know, for example, one of the rituals that I teach them is how to maintain emotional intimacy in their relationship. It's a good way to, to do it. And I do it once a week, even with my own husband. And there's three questions that you can ask your partner. So the first question is, what are you celebrating? Second question is, what are you challenged with? And the third question is, how can I support you this week? And it's just a nice touch base, just a nice ritual when you're out to dinner on a date or you're at the house having dinner together. And once a week, usually on Sundays, my husband and I talk about what we are celebrating and what we are feeling challenged with, you know, so that way we create a container to have those types of conversations. And in those conversations, there's also some rules. For example, neither one of us can offer a solution. Um, for example, neither one of mm. us can, in, you know, interrupt when the other person is talking, you know, like, there's certain containers that you can build around these types of conversations that make them different than every other conversation that you have with your spouse. So I teach them those types of things. And it's just really amazing. I had such a great time at the last retreat with my couples. I had about 15 couples show up. So 30 people in total, I like to keep them nice and intimate because I also work one-on-one -on -one with them. And the, the biggest challenge that people have is not just sexual connection, but communication. I mean, honestly, that's, that's where the work needs to be had. And then everything else is just, you know, amazing. I also teach this thing called higher trigger management um, and how to hold space for your partner when they are mad. You know, in this culture, especially in America, when someone's mad or angry or frustrated or pissed off or pissy, right? You know, our first response is, gosh, what's your problem? Why are you acting like that today, right? And mm -hmm. it's judgment and it's critical and it has all those things. And I even teach this to my couples to do this with their children um, and learning how to allow the children to celebrate all emotions, even the sadness or the, the disappointment and so forth, right? And so what I mean by holding space is instead of judging your partner, it would look something like this. It would be, hey, honey, I noticed that you're having a really hard time right now. What can I do to support you? Or, hey, honey, I noticed that you're really frustrated right now. Maybe I haven't been as present for you. Is there something that I can help you with today? Right. And just going right in with that as opposed to the judgment and all those other things and really holding space for that person when they're upset. You know, sometimes my husband brings me a pillow and he's like screaming to a pillow, honey. I'm like, okay, you know, and, you know, you just allow yourself to have all these emotions. You know, it's the, the American society has just gotten so acculturated to be allergic, you know, to anger or anger or depression or sadness or anxiety as if they're bad things, but they're actually not. They're like the indicator going on in your check engine light in your car. You know, it's like your engine needs to be checked. It's the same thing when we get angry or when we feel sad. We need to check our engine, if that makes sense. No, it, it definitely makes sense. It's a great analogy. But do you think that 
you have to have enough self-reflection as well to be able to to even notice that within yourself if you're if your husband or your kids are upset and you have to know like I need to how I respond is going to make a difference in the entire dynamic of this yeah I mean it's basically you know listening to a conversation like this for example it's just being aware people do most of my couples just need to be aware that there is another option for them you know a lot of times couples just do what their parents did or what their friends are doing those types of things and a lot of the times those things that our parents teach us or our friends tell us to do are not backed by research number one a lot of the things that they teach don't work um and they're just really bad habits you know so it's breaking those habits and being aware that there's a different option here to respond and yes it takes a certain amount of emotional awareness but i would say when my couples work with me for maybe two or three months they're already there you know i don't see my couples for years and years and years you know i just i'm not that kind of therapist i like to let let them figure out how to manage these things over time and get better and better you know practice makes perfect do you think that intimacy and sex go hand in hand in your experience or can you have one without the other um, I have seen couples have one without the other, but um, they're not closer because of it, though. You know, hmm. for a relationship to be completely tuned, you're talking about emotional intimacy um, on a weekly basis. You're talking about sexual intimacy three or four, maybe five times a week, if not every day. You know, like you're really connected to your partner. That is like what I would probably say for most couples would be like Eden or Nirvana, right? Um, so the answer to your question is actually multifaceted, leaving that as the, like, the highest and best self because sexual, if you don't have sexual connection, and what I mean by that is if you're not tapping into your own sexuality, you're kind of also cutting off your own creativity as well. Like sexuality is more free. Um, and if you're not allowing that in your relationship as often, because it's not about a frequency thing, it's more about a quality thing. Mm -hmm. But it's also, it's also just you allowing your own self to be fully expressed sexually. It's kind of like after you have sex with your husband, right, Courtney, you're kind of like, mm -hmm. oh, man, why don't we do that more often, you know? Because you feel fully open, your body feels open, you know, you just feel different after an orgasm or after you sweat for a couple, you know, 20, 30 minutes with your partner, you know? And it's the highest level of connection, in my opinion, outside of emotional vulnerability and intimacy. So do couples... Can couples have one without the other? Yes. And couples that have a lot of sex, but they don't have a lot of emotional intimacy, there's a, an emotional block. And couples that have a lot of emotional intimacy with no, with no sex, they have a sexual block. And so they do go hand in hand, but they can also be isolated as well. That was wonderful. <laughs> uh, so tell me about how you got started with your podcast, how that came about. Um, I, was, I was on my treadmill a couple of years back and I w just graduated my PhD program and I felt so free. I was like a flying bird. I was like, oh my gosh, thank God my dissertation is over, you know? <laughs> and I was just thinking about what do I want to do? You know, what do I want to do now? And I was like, I want to start a podcast. And I'm like, I'm passionate about two things. I'm passionate about taboos and spreading awareness about things that are taboo. And it's not just sexual taboos. It's everything. It's like postpartum depression. You know, people don't talk about that or pain during sex. People don't talk about that. You know, so I was like, how can I bring awareness to these types of topics. And so I came up with taboo talk time and my podcast is on iTunes and Google play. So if you guys want to check it out, would love to have you guys check it out. I'm also on my website, relationshiprevolutionaries.com. You can learn more about me there, but I started it because I was passionate about two things, taboos, breaking through them and relationships, couples. 
what do you think what has been the most challenging topic for people to talk about um yeah that's a good question i i think it's all challenging uh, you know pretty much all taboos i would say swinging relationships seem to be the most taboo um postpartum depression for women also seems to be the most taboo right now a lot of people are not really supporting women um in the way that they need to be after pregnancy um i mean man that podcast that i did on uh um what's it called abortion and um uh, what was the other what was the other one? I can't remember for some reason. But anyway, um, there was another there was another podcast that I did. Um, oh, sorry, miscarriages. Th- that's what it was. Um, mm. I did a podcast on um, miscarriages and also not being able to have children as a couple, you know, learning that you can't have children. Mm-hmm. Those are the two probably most sad, you know, um, topics for for couples. And um, that podcast actually on miscarriages was really powerful. And every time I listen to it, I, um, I cry, you know, cause it's, it's actually, you know, it's pretty sad, you know, the, the realization that people don't like women, for example, don't have anyone to go talk to when they do have miscarriages, you know, and it's just such a sad topic. Nobody knows how to talk about it, you know? Yeah, I can, I, I have actually only had one friend who's openly shared that she's had a miscarriage. Yeah. But it was, I had a miscarriage and that was, there was no further discussion discussion about it. Yeah. It was just like, she, she actually suffered in silence for a while. She didn't tell anyone she like disappeared, which was just not like her. And you know, I couldn't get in touch with her. I'm like, what's going on? You know, everything, everything. Okay. And then, I didn't hear from her for weeks. Exactly. And then I don't believe that she ever went to do anything about it, but that is amazing that you're able to have those kinds of conversations with women. Cause that's also kind of how I started this podcast was because I, I had postpartum. Um, I like to talk about real authentic conversations I want to have real conversations with people who are smarter than me who know different things different areas than me that we can share because there's so much power when women know that they're not alone exactly and that's an I agree with that and I'm so happy that you're doing that because we need more of that in the world and the thing is is that vulnerable conversations are the only thing that helps people grow you know, if people like if I'm not vulnerable, I'm often vulnerable with my clients. And according to the therapeutic model, you're not supposed to share, you know, and you're not supposed to cross that boundary unless it's beneficial for the client. And of course, only when it's beneficial for the client, I'll share. But sometimes just that open camaraderie with someone else that might have been through something a little similar is more therapeutic, you know, than anything else. You know, just the relationship, knowing that I'm not alone, you know, that I'm not suffering alone or that, you know, wow, other people have been here and look where they're at now and I can do it too. You know, it's nice. It's empowering. Yeah. So I work in applied behavior analysis and we kind of, we have an ethical code as well about how, you know, we have to interact with our clients, with their families. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's very similar in that we call it pairing. when we're getting to know the clients getting to know the families and it's almost inevitable that something a little more personal maybe not sex topics with my my clients in particular but Mm -hmm. um, that something personal is going to come up in our conversation and you know there's a lot of talk in our field about sharing too much or dual relationships and, and I work in homes So it's even, you know, it's not like I work in a clinic that these clients come to see me. I'm going to their home. So I kind of have to put on a face, but there's times that I'm telling them things. you know, I talk about my kids or I say, yeah, like I had a struggle like that. And 
in our ethical code, we're not supposed to do those things. We're not even supposed to like accept water at the house, like very stringent things that just, you're not a person at that point. And I don't feel like you can make a genuine connection or impact if you can't be human. Yeah, you know, when I was going through my PhD program, it was interesting because we talked a lot about um, boundaries and ethics and best practice. And, you know, I mean, I do think for the most part, you know, that's actually a great thing. You know, I think the the message is that, hey, you're not here for me. I'm here for you is basically what it is. And as long as you're mindful of that and don't get lost in the sauce, with your own storyline, you know, then I think it can be therapeutically beneficial. But you know, it's just one of those things that you have to be careful with. Because you can't, you know, people can overshare, you know, I've seen that happen, too. And it just becomes a little bit of an issue um, as well. You know, Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with cybernetics, but cybernetics is like systems theory, like the original systems theory. And what they did was like older therapists, like psychoanalysis, what they would do, obviously, as you know, um, they would, you know, kind of sit down and be the observer outside of the system. And, you know, the whole marriage and family therapy movement was to kind of change that and for the therapist to actually go inside of the reality of the client and understand their worldview and what's going on with them and so forth, you know as a way to not just join with them, but also to be therapeutically beneficial. So, you know, you have to have a little bit of knowledge, I would say, about when it is appropriate to share and when it's not, you know. Definitely. And I have, um, so my aunt, she's a social worker, and then I have a, um, a cousin who's a licensed mental health counselor, But it's very interesting when I talk to them about different boundaries or ethical things that are happening. Because in our field, in applied behavior analysis specifically, we just have very, we're we're in very interesting situations because we're in the homes. Yeah. So we're seeing a lot more things than, you know, if I was to come to your office, you're going to see me and my husband and we're going to talk about stuff or me or my husband. Right. Um, You know, but like, Sometimes I'm going into these environments yeah. and we get all of it and you're, you're trying to treat the client, yeah. but you have a lot of barriers too. So yeah. it's just, it's interesting to, to see the different, the differences as well in the, yeah, the modes and the modality and what's, yeah. what's okay, what's not, you know? Yeah. I find with couples therapy, because the thing is, is that couples therapy is also a little different, I think, than like. Um, individual therapy. Um, it's, it's definitely harder. Um, it, you know, for me, I have to maintain my energy levels throughout the week. I get a massage once a week. I meditate every morning. I have a very strict morning schedule. You know, like I create, I make jewelry as a hobby, you know. So I do a lot of things for self-care because I'm with couples like 20 hours, 20 to 25 hours a week. And um, it, get, it can get really um, it can affect the body, you know, person to person, especially if they're yelling or if they're upset, you know, it's not so much the mind, but it's your body feels the anxiety rise in the clients, for example, you know, so, um, so with that being said, it's, it's really important to also just kind of manage um, those types of things in the therapeutic relationship. And, Um, you know, as you're talking about your experience with your clients, it's interesting because, you know, with individual therapy, you really can, you really, you don't have to share as much, but it's interesting with couples therapy, I find myself sharing a little bit more just as like a baseline for what's possible for them, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it makes, it makes total because sense. Because the, the, a lot of couples are like, yeah, right, you know, that's not going to happen. You know what I'm saying? And they don't believe because they've never seen a proper role model, you know? They don't know, like, they don't believe that you can actually be that in love and that you can actually work through your, you know, your arguments like that. You know, there's lots of skepticism when it comes to couples therapy, believe it or not. 
So you're constantly breaking through their egos, basically. That makes sense. No, it makes it makes complete sense. And where where can people find you? Um, I'll include this in the show notes too. But where can they you you, you plugged a little bit? But where can they find you on social media? Um, Eva Brown Burnett is my personal profile, but I use that for business. And then I also have a uh, Dr. Eva Brown intimacy specialist. That's my page. And um, if you like, if, if people are on Instagram, um, my handle is the couples doctor. Um, the couple, the underscore couples underscore doctor. So you can find me there too. Well, thank you so much for joining on the warrior podcast it was so great you gave so much valuable information that i'm sure so many women will be able to benefit from thank you for having me on courtney it's been really fun i hope it was good for you too and i look forward to hearing it Thanks for listening to the Warrior Her podcast. Don't forget to join us next week for another fun episode. Go like, subscribe, rate, and leave a review on iTunes. Until next time, Warriors, remember, girls really do run the world. Hey guys, it's Courtney from the Warrior Her podcast. Just wanted to take the time here to let you know that if you're thinking of doing a podcast, there's a way for you to do a show without having to become an audio editing and production wizard. Pretty Easy Podcast helps podcasters get their shows recorded and posted with a complete podcast studio right at their disposal. You can record from your home or your office or even at the park. Pretty Easy Podcasts caters to your schedule and gives you a producer for your show right at your beck and call. If you have an idea for a show and need someone to rely on to help you get it done, go to prettyeasypodcasts.com and sign up today. Be heard and have some fun podcasting. You know you want to do it. Go to prettyeasypodcasts.com today.